Greetings, everyone. This is a Sound Health radio show where we talk about the crossroads of the environment and our health and longevity. With Richard Talk to Me Guy, and as we know, Sherry Edwards is off working on the SoundHealthPortal.com. I'm currently suggesting going to the SoundHealthPortal.com, scrolling down just a bit, clicking on the Watch How button. Then after you do that, you'll see a short video explaining the how to record your voice into the computer or phone or whatever device you're using. And then go back up on that page and look at the current campaigns. Current campaigns are those that are free services currently that you can use to see what it looks like to have your voice run through one of these software programs, such as PTSD, TBI, cellular inflammation, or BioDiet or a personal favorite of mine, neuroplasticity. Choose one of those that's of interest to you. Click on the campaign, click on the free voice analysis, and the system will walk you through submitting your voice, and you'll get an email back within about an hour or two at the most, I find, with the results of seeing what it looks like when your voice is taken, run through the software, broken down into little tiny bits of information and correlated to how that indicates, which is in relationship to the vagal nerve, what indicates in your voice things that are out of balance. And it's always amazing. I've been knowing about Cherry's work for more than 15 years by now, I think. And it's just amazing the kind of information you can find out, the little states that is like, oh, that's why I'm not quite performing in that way or any number of things. So you can find all that at soundhealthportal.com. To hear and share replays of this show, about 30 to 40 minutes after you hear the outro music, you can go to Talk To Me Guy, just like it sounds, scroll down that page, and you'll see this show at the top of the episodes page. There are also archives of hundreds of hours. I think it's close to 500 hours of shows there now. And on all of those pages, there's a microphone in the lower right corner. If you want to leave me a suggestion, a question for a guest, or just say hi, or you want to start doing your own podcast, feel free to just leave me a message. I'll be notified, and I will get back to you. With that, Dr. Carla Marie Manley, psychologist, life fulfillment expert, and author, resides in Sonoma County, California. In addition to her clinical practice focusing on relationships and personal transformation, Dr. Manley is deeply interested in her roles as a consultant and speaker. Dr. Manley offers insights on even the most challenging topics, focusing on overall health and optimal wellness. She also skillfully promotes mindfulness, stress reduction, fitness, and self-care with a warm, direct approach plus a dose of humor. Dr. Manley enjoys supporting others in the ever-evolving journey of life. Her three extraordinary books, Date Smart, Joy from Fear, and Aging Joyfully, plus her soon-to-be-released The Joy of Imperfect Love, highlight Dr. Manley's empowering approach and profound expertise. Dr. Manley takes us on a soulful adventure into joyful self-awareness. With a personal, welcoming attitude, her books are ideal for individuals and those who enjoy journeying into greater self-awareness. Welcome, Dr. Carla. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's an adventure. We've already had some riffing backstage. (laughs) We can go any number of directions. But I will start with this really wonderful quote, life can be a journey of consciously crafting the best version of oneself. Wellness and joy do not occur by chance. They are fostered by manifesting one's true light with courage and strength. By creating a respectful, aware relationship with oneself and others, the body, mind, and spirit thrive. Dr. Carla Marie Manley. I love that. Thank just... you. It's, it's a hearty quote, isn't it? It is. It is. In studying for the show with you, we've talked before, and I'll put a, a, a link in the show notes for the show we did previously. It just amuses me to think that you at one t- point were on the path to becoming possibly an attorney. And yeah. and I just think that your wordsmithing skills may have been enhanced by the possibility of becoming an attorney, but I can't imagine you be, being an attorney with that as a foundational belief of Awareness of relationships and self and others, because that doesn't seem to be a very attorney kind of thing. That's my personal view. 
Absolutely. And what you're looking at in that part of my life is almost the genesis of my first, you know, fostered the book Joy from Fear because I was raised, I'm the ninth child in a family of ten, ten kids and then mom and dad. And so I stuck out like a sore thumb in my family as being a bit different. I tested extremely high on IQ tests early on in life, so I was put in special classes and da 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 and so was pushed to be in the business world and to become an attorney, although my heart wanted to be either in the teaching realm or before I even knew what it was to be a psychologist, there was something in me that knew, for whatever reason, that little image of Lucy, even though it's in some ways not positive, Lucy and the Charlie Brown comic strips offering help for five cents, that always called to me. I thought, you know, I would like to offer help to people because I grew up in a very chaotic, difficult environment, not understanding what was healthy and not healthy, and then moving out into the world, high school, college, and really it wasn't until I entered law school that my body told me because my mind wasn't allowed to tell me to take my own path. My body started saying, no, we are not doing this. This is, I was at, at Hastings in San Francisco, and um, we are not doing this. And then much to my father's dismay, I entered a master's program for counseling and was looked so down upon that as a profession that he didn't even come to my graduation. Wow. And that is, yes, yes. And so it's, and then, but you would think I would have the wake-up call then in my, you know, mid-20s. Uh, you would think I would learn at that point, but no, I didn't. I had been so indoctrinated to be a people pleaser, to be a good person, that God would punish me if I didn't obey my parents and all of that, that I um, then worked in a field with my family that, again, was not right for me, but it was very helpful for everyone else because I was essentially the beast of burden. And that's, you know, that was choice. I'm not making excuses here. It's all choice. But it really shows the power of how we are programmed to go against our best selves. And it was one of the reasons when I finally had the courage, finally, finally, to break free of all that. And at great cost, mind you, great cost in many ways, but in a great boon to my emotional health, to my mental health, to my spiritual health, I finally went my own way. And that's when I got my doctorate and built on the master's I had you know, earned earlier in life. And that is, it was in my doctoral program that I started researching fear. I wanted to understand, because some of the work I had been doing why I, who thought, you know, I thought I was pretty tough and resilient, but I didn't understand why I had buckled down and not been myself for so many years, so many decades. And that's when I started, I developed um, two questionnaires, one qualitative and one quantitative, to understand people's responses to fear, realistic fears and unrealistic fears. And then that became my dissertation. And uh, New York Times bestselling author Thomas More was so kind, he's a brilliant human being, to become my external reader for that dissertation. And he and I didn't know him. I had just reached out to him. And he said, this should be a book. And it took me eight years to get that book crafted out of an academic sense and into a public sense. But Joy from Fear became... Not It's not a book about me. It is a book about what I wish I had had so that I could mm. give it to my clients and the public so that they would be able to not be stuck. I would never want anyone to be as stuck as I was, to be um, somebody else's people pleaser, to give up decades of their lives to make other people happy. And that's why I channeled so much love into that book. And because it is my, and of course it's filled with exercises because we can read a self-help book. We can go to therapy. But if we don't engage in the work, and that's why each book that I've written um, 
Joy from Fear, Aging Joyfully, Date Smart, and then my next book, The Joy of Imperfect Love, which is due out in early 2024. Each book is filled, and some, in some ways they're a very difficult part of the book, book writing because I take everything that I can to help somebody who's serious about doing the work, serious about transforming, give them exercises so that they can get a journal and then do the work and do the work and begin to manifest these changes in their own lives. So that's a synopsis of my book journey and the passion behind those books. Well, in the time, this is not anywhere in my notes, but it just comes from talking to you again, that you feel joyful when I hear you talk. And what I mean by that is that you have a sense of rhythm and sound to how you speak. You are filled with joy by doing what you're doing. Am I Ab reading that correctly? Absolutely. And as I hear you reflect those words to me, I get chills because I know what it's like to live a life without joy. And I have. I'm, I'm blessed to have a sort of indomitable spirit in some ways. But yes, the life that I'm living now, being able to work with clients, write, speak to the public, I feel so blessed every single day. So blessed. And so blessed when I get an email from someone that, who says, you know, I read your book and this touched me and it's changed my life. Um, all of those things, I feel if I can touch one person at a time, one paragraph at a time, one book at a time, then I'm living out what I'm meant to do. That's, what, that's my calling. And I have to say, Richard, I am also acutely aware that my books are from me. Yes, I sit down, I do the writing, I do that heavy lifting. But the messages in them are also from somebody, something, some power, so much beyond me that I know it's not a, an act solo done by Carla. It's an act done with the support of my loved ones, my husband, those who have helped me along the way, and, of course, the divine, who I believe I channel a lot. Um, mm -hmm. So I really have to say that, that it's, yes, I do the work, but I also know that I am informed by um, something much more powerful than my individual spirit. Mm -hmm. And you're very, you're, you're very sincere in a really clean way. Versus some, some other people, this is not this is not uh, sit down with Dr. Carla and do therapy session, but it sounds like it a little bit. So everybody just hang on a second. You're very sincere in that you really are heartfelt as you're speaking. It's very, because I've talked with other people. I've done 900 hours of shows and four years of Tresco okay. Radio. I've talked, to a, I've talked to a lot of people, not as many as you, but I've talked to a lot of people. And it's always interesting when I come across with somebody such as yourself, that is that way. You were, it's a very similar experience when I was uh, there's a doctor. She was a prison doctor for 33 years, unintentionally. She was the first female prison doctor in the United States in Nevada for 33 years. She okay. was assigned there for four, she was assigned there for four years. She ended up there being 33. And when I talked to Dr. Gedney, she has a very similar thing. She's very pure in her essence of who she is and the experience she's been through, which has had some really gnarly drama. And yet she still has, speaks in a very sincere voice. And it's always, you know, just that experience for me is always moving. And, oh. you know, it's, you know, it's delightful. Thank you. I, it's interesting because I don't really know any other way of being. And it yeah. sometimes gets me into a bit of hot water because <laughs> for me yeah. to be manipulative yeah. or something like that, it's just, I, I, I don't. It's, it's not a natural thing. I don't know how to do it. And so I remember years ago I was working on um, with juvenile probation. I did a, 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 my internship and time after that with juveniles on sexual who were sexual offenders. And it was one of the most blessed experiences of my life because I don't do well with bureaucrats because I like to speak my mind. I speak my truth, and that's how I am. And we were in a meeting one day with, 
with probation staff and all of that. And finally, one, and I was trying to mince my words to get it out what I had to say in a way that wouldn't trample on the bureaucracy. And one of the people finally said, Carla, just out with it. Just out with what you have to say. We know it's there. And they said, we won't be mad at you. And I said, okay. And I just shot from my heart. And so when I speak from my heart, I'm not good at rehearsing things because then it taints my message. I do better when I just speak the truth that is comes from my heart and is also channeled through me. And mm-hmm. that's, I, I know everyone's not that way. It's just my way. Yeah. Boy, howdy. Okay. Now, Aging Joyfully, A Woman's Guide to Optimal Health, Relationships, and Fulfillment in Her 50s and Beyond. In reading about this and talking with you now, I feel a bit like a wolf in sheep's clothing talking about this book. It's a book written for women. And here we are, a guy talking about it. That's why I feel like a sheep in wolf's clothing. It's a little like, I don't know, did I sneak in around the edges? Can I talk about this? Could you expand Absolutely. that a little for me? This is this is me sitting in a chair now asking for therapy because that's how I feel. I feel like, I don't know, should I be talking about this? I'm a guy. What do I know? Absolutely. Richard, if I had my way, the book would have been titled Aging Joyfully, Everyone's Guide to Optimal mm-hmm. Relationships and Fulfillment for Their 30s and Beyond. Mm-hmm. And the reason, so first off, it's not a, if I had to rewrite it again, it would be, if I, if, if, if I rewrote it, it would be done differently. It would be less gender specific because there are definitely, there are some things in the book like menopause that are more specific to women. But when I, even when I say that, any woman who has a, a male partner or any male who has, um, daughters or a mother, right? Of course, everyone has a mother, will want to know this information. But most of the book is very gender neutral because it is about the issues that we face with ageism, self-ageism. It is about the messages that we get that youth is the ideal 15 or 17-year-old body or face or whatever that is, and men face that as well. It is about the issue that I feel sick when I have a 20-something-year-old client telling me she's too old and no Uh longer relevant. It is the piece that I'm all about whatever surgery, cosmetic things people want to do, you know, make yourself happy, do do what you need to do to feel good in your skin. But the fact that we have 20-year-olds, 19-year-olds getting this surgery, that surgery, this Botox, this Botox to prevent this beast called aging. And again, so I'm not judging anyone. I'm just saying there are people who don't have enough money for food who are spending it on plastic surgery so that they can feel loved and accepted. I would mm-hmm. hope that our world will love us and accept us, and if we want to do something, dye our hair, do this, do that, so we feel good, that's fine. They're not mutually exclusive. So the book is for both women. You know, it's for, for it's, I wish it were not as gendered as it is. And again, um, the publisher and I had a back and forth about the age because I did want to go lower. And then when we look at some of the things that have come out since this book, people are really using that 40-year-old um, as the benchmark. But I do think 30-year-olds, again, based on my clinical practice, late 20s, 30s, they're already feeling that pressure to be quote-unquote young, yet I talk in the book about I had met Marion Woodman. She's now passed when I was in my doctoral program, and she wrote Addiction to Perfection, among other books, and got into her profession late in life. And when I first met her, I believe she was in her late 70s, early 80s, she was the most radiant, gorgeous woman I had, I've ever met. Her eyes sparkled. Her spirit sparkled. And I wish that our culture, that societies around the world, valued those who are older the way they have 
in, in the past. Of course, I'm not saying that youth hasn't always been prized, but it really creates a very toxic load for us emotionally, physically, mentally, when we aren't able to embrace where we are in life and not look back with regret or look to the future of, well, I don't want to do that because I'm too old. I don't believe there's this card I have that says we are never too old to be that which we might have been. And I really believe that, and that is one of the biggest messages in Aging Joyfully. And I, it, we do a lot of work in that book around the past, around letting go, so that if you're holding resentments about something in your past, to work on forgiveness, letting go. And then the book evolves and goes toward the end. It's all about looking at your life, and you can see how this works for men and women. If you're in a role or have been in a role where you are not happy, whether you find yourself empty nesting it in a job you don't like, whether you're 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, hey, this is the time. Now is the time. If I can reinvent my life, if I can do that, if I can leave this a profession, revamp my life, go back to school, um, you know, really live in a very, you know, basic, basic way while I'm doing all of these things and reconfigure my life and then create one that does feel joyful, that does feel empowering, where I feel like I have a purpose and I am giving back. If I can do it, anyone can. And I'm, for years I have, all the way from Jonathan Wright, an MD up in Tacoma, Washington, who's been a thought leader who's in his 80s now, who still lectures, I talk to a lot of people. Well, I'll go back to Karen Gedney again. Uh, a, a friend of hers, Karen had always been a workout person because it helped her get centered before she would go into prison for the day. And just three, uh, it was about three or four years ago, she's now in her later 60s, in her mid-60s, a friend of hers sort of said, well, you ought to enter this bodybuilding contest. And just for literally a lark, she joined, she competed in a 60 to 70 year old bikini contest and won. And it's not because she had ever, that was never a life goal. That was not why she was working out. She was working out to keep her mental health and physical health, but she did it and she won. So I interview a lot of people who are in their fifties to 99 currently is the oldest one. Doc William Gifford is an MD up in Canada who's 99. And so I'm interviewing people who have gone through the possible youth thing, and now they're, in this case, I think part of the reason is because some of them are MDs, and it takes them a while to get out of that, oh boy, I'm going to say it, cult of MD, meaning of the, uh, that limited belief system, and become functional medicine practitioners or, um, you know, some kind of alternative they get an acupuncture degree, they get something else that opens them up and they start doing more amazing work. And so I'm talking to a lot of people who are in their 60s and 70s. I'm 70. And I just think it's, it's a, that's one of the things that really jumps out for me in your book is talking about the, this thing of ageism. You know, there was a time when wisdom was respected. And I don't mean all people have wisdom, all old people have wisdom. Some old people are just old and I don't mean exactly. that as a derogatory to age some of them are just old doesn't because you're old doesn't mean you have wisdom but it's awesome to be talking to these people that have these decades of experience you know I talked to doc, uh, some doc I can't remember his name oh Greenblatt a, a phenomenal expert on Alzheimer's and ADHD and all of that and he started work as a practitioner in the early in the early 80s and he's still actively today managing clinics and doing great research. So I think that there, is, there can be wisdom. Let's talk about wisdom. What, what is wisdom and how does it occur, I guess, in – well, talk about it, how you talk about it in Aging Joyfully, if you would, please. Many people, in, from what I've seen, use wisdom and intelligence synonymously, and I – 
I see them as being very, very different. You can be a very intelligent person, test very well on IQ tests and not have wisdom. And I agree with you that chronological age does not have much to do with being wise. You can be in your 60s and 70s and be very emotionally and intellectually immature. And you can, I have met some 20-year-olds and even younger than that who are, wise beyond their years they are thoughtful so how do i so i know what we know what intelligence is it's being able to um you know know our facts and our figures and make informed rational decisions that sort of thing and, and have accrued lots of knowledge from the world and then there is wisdom and wisdom to me is very much about being in tune with yourself with your higher self, with some connection to the divine that I believe channels really true wisdom to us, and doing what is best for the self, others, and the planet, doing that. To me, that is wisdom. When we make sound judgments based on what we have been able to learn, being curious, all of that makes us wise. And I don't think that we can be unmindful and wise. I think to be wise, we must be mindful. We must cultivate an attitude of curiosity and thoughtfulness and empathy and compassion and thinking. I don't think thinking alone does it. And my dad used to say thinking is the hardest thing there is. That's why so few people engage in it. And I think (laughs) thinking of that ilk, the ilk he was talking about, really looking to not just have knowledge, but to accrue knowledge in a way that informs the self, elevates the self. Because every time we inform and elevate the self and then act in ways that are congruent with that, then we are making our relationships better. We are making the world better. And it's interesting because we can look at this, this wisdom on a basic level. We can be intelligent and say, oh, it's a bad idea to throw trash on the road. But a person who is wise will not only minimize their use of, you know, you know, paper, plastic, all of that sort of thing. But then if they see that trash on the road, they will also pick it up and dispose of it properly because then they're living in accord with their beliefs and then they're showing, without trying to show other people, they are showing in action that we do pick up this trash as a way of being. To me, that's wisdom in action. We can mm-hmm. also, if we look at it in a psychological realm, um, which is why, you know, I'm imperfect, always, you know, we're always imperfect, we're human, and I'm always trying to be a better version of myself and help my clients and others be their best versions. And so understanding that that's an evolution, a process that will never end, you know, till the day I die, I'll still be working on. So things like that to me really reflect that we are a, a... hope to be wise, a pursuit of wisdom, and an embracing of wisdom. Mm-hmm. I like that. And <laughs> this jumps out because of, I can't remember if I read or heard you say this. <clears throat> what is the Cartesian split? And where did that come from? That is a, when I've I, I heard or read you say it, I wrote it down, I looked it up, and I went, what is that? What is the Cartesian split, and who who is Cartesian? Was there a Cartesian? Very close. Um, You just don't recognize it because when we talk Cartesian split, they're not using the whole name of Descartes. Ah, So the Cartesian split, why they truncated it, I don't know. And that probably came from Joy from Fear, where I talk about the Cartesian split, which is the split when Descartes proposed that we are basically machines, that we are divorced from our bodies. That split between the body as 
the whole, the home for the body, the mind, the spirit, that they are all interconnected. So that started with Descartes, where prior to Descartes, we believed that the human was a soulful, interconnected being. And even in today's world, especially when we look at Western medicine, it is about, you know, there is really a mind-body split paradigm. But when we come back to really knowing the truth, that we are all, the body is the home, but the body is connected to the mind and the spirit. And when the spirit is not well, the body won't be well. When the mind isn't well, the body and the spirit won't be well. That we want it all to be well and ideally be focusing as much as we can on the spirit because if the spirit is well, then and this is my paradigm, then the that filters down to the body and the mind. Um, and that's why I've often asked people who really don't think much of the world of psychology, because there are people out there who say, oh, you know, no, I'm just all for medicine. Give me the meds. Give me the meds. You know, that's where that's where the magic is at. And I'm a big believer, and this is people who say that to me. I'll say something like, okay, so if I were able to, you were able to have a choice. I give you a choice between a healthy body and a healthy mind. You can only have one of those two. Which will you take? And hmm. that really helps. People will always take a step back and say, well, I want both. So no, 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 I'm giving you a choice of one or the other. And so for me, if you have the healthy body, but a mind that is ravaged and in pain, and, and then you're, the healthy body does you no good. You can be the most fit, you know, beautiful person, handsome person in the world, and if your mind is not well, the body, it, it's no good. But if you have a good mind, your, your spirit is good, your mind is good, and your body is ailing, and I think of um, Christopher Reeves, the original, you know, one of the original supermen, right? Mm-hmm. And he had been in that very terrible, I think it was a horse, horse accident, an accident riding horses. But from what I knew, I don't watch stars very much, that sort of thing. But I do recall how I had heard he was just very much a wonderful human being. And even as his body failed him, he remained very positive, very kind, very loving. And I have worked and known enough people who have fit bodies and very um, tortured minds. And I will go with the mind every day, every time. If you give me that choice, knowing what I know now, I would absolutely say, give me the, the mind and the spirit that are in a peaceful, happy, joyful place. Mm-hmm. But the Cartesian split, back to your question, the Cartesian split would have us say, well, the body is one thing and the mind is another, and we will treat the, treat the body, and, we will, and if the mind needs help, we will treat the mind, but they're not interconnected. And, oh, of course they are. Wow. <laughs> that Descartes. Um, tricky. And, and how does, in your work, this is not something I read, but it's just because we're in this arena, what about the relationship between the mind and the microbiome or the gut? A lot of people in the health field now talk about the gut as this second brain. And, it's, and I, I'm in that crowd in the sense of what we put in our body, the fuel that we put on our body goes into our gut or our digestive system. And we were talking a little bit about this about backstage about my phrase, which the audience is familiar with, total toxic load because of all the stuff in the environment. Do you, if somebody comes in and they have, I don't, I don't have psychological words, but if they have something going on, are there times when you talk to them about their diet or you suggest that maybe they want to read this book or think about what they're putting in their body, maybe some of the things that they're having reactions to, like if somebody has bad, I'll say wheat allergies, but it's possibly also glyphosate issues. Is there a way for you to guide them into maybe eating better, for lack of a better description? It's interesting because you were talking about earlier, Richard, how um, 
an MD, you know, there are certain constraints there, and Mm -hmm. it is the same with my degree, right? With a PhD, you have to be careful. Mm. Coach, you can suggest, but you have to be very careful. Um, and so, what, where I had more freedom, this does answer your question. I'll take it in a, in a roundabout way, but I'll get there. That when I was working with the juveniles on probation, they came from the sexual, you know, that sexual offender unit came from all segments of society: uh, low income, moderate income, high income, and. One of the overarching pieces I saw with the young boys, the young men, was that they had, um, I I look at the whole being. I look at body, mind, spirit. I I, I don't want to do it any other way. And um, I would talk to them. uh, Often the higher-ups would come and say, Dr. Manley, we would like you to get this ADHD diagnosis. And I said, "Mm, let me evaluate the child. And I'd talk to the young man and would talk about his, what he was eating for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, what his day was like. I'm not saying ADHD doesn't exist, but I am saying in the pool that I worked with, I found that these young men were often skipping breakfast. If they did have breakfast, it was an adrenaline drink. They had something at school, often a slice of, you know, cold pizza, corn dog, another adrenaline drink. And then they'd come home for dinner, and they would eat chips and nachos when they came home, and then, you know, eat in front of the TV or eat on the run, and it was, you know, something from the freezer or, you know, a heated up thing in in the toaster oven, whatever it was. And most of the young men, when I talked to them about fruits and vegetables, they thought that potato chips were a vegetable, that ketchup was a vegetable because it's made from tomatoes, and and when we look at this diet, which is not uncommon, especially with busy families, does it not make sense that these young men are going around not being able to pay attention at school, that they're acting out, that they're coming home to parents who have worked all day who are tired and just say, hey, just watch the TV or get on your computer they, they need exercise. They need solid food. They need good food. So, of course, there's a connection to our diet and then, uh, you know, to how we behave and what we eat. And I happen to be a vegetarian, and, um, you know, that, that's by choice and the you know, way other people eat. That's their choice. But when I go back and I think about teaching these young men the value of having a fresh fruit, a fresh vegetable with every meal if if possible. Now, I know there are communities where that isn't available and possible, but it is about creating the awareness. And then I wanted to take them on shopping trips to the grocery store so they could understand how to shop in a grocery store. And um, I wasn't able to get permission for that, so I learned to take these young men on virtual shopping trips. And I would give them each $100, and they would go through the store without my assistance and then tell me what they put in their cart. And usually it was well over $100, but it was chips and nachos and a deli sandwich and ice cream and sodas. And then I would work with them in a very nonjudgmental way to learn to go to the perimeter of the grocery store, so shop the perimeter where everything is fresh or likely to be fresh, avoid the interior where everything is generally packaged, how to look for things in the organic section that are on sale, that are often, if you pay attention to that, you can get them at less expensive than something non-organic. And so we would do that, and they would find that if they bought a jar of peanut butter, and there's a difference between real peanut butter and I can't mention brands, but certain other peanut butters that are not very, mm. have sugar additives and stuff, that they would realize that for that $100, they could stock their kitchen for a week or two by buying peanut butter and a bag of apples and a loaf of, you know, whole grain bread and all of these things. And they would get so excited because they had learned, wait a minute, this isn't complicated. This isn't something I have to do just because my friends do it. If I want to buy a bag of baby carrots instead of a bag of Doritos, that's fine. And so they and they would get so excited. So little pieces like that where we educate 
our children. We educate um, others in a very fun way. And then back to the, you know, the, the gut biome. I remember listening to a TED talk about this from this phenomenal woman who had, and, and we know that enteric nervous system in the gut is so powerful, so wise. We've known that so for such a long time. It's why we say things like, I'm sick to my stomach. I have butterflies in my stomach. Because we know the stomach, the gut informs us. And we just now have the research, because people love having the research, to show them that, and this was the TED Talk where she was saying she was a researcher, that it just blows me away, that the brain-to-gut messages, if we look at 100%, brain-to-gut is 10%, gut-to-brain is 90%. Mm. That is how much the gut informs us. And so I think we've always known that, you know, for eons, we've known how wise that stomach is. That is where, when we think about our feelings, I have a a pit in my stomach. You know, I have a sinking feeling in my stomach. Our gut is a source of so much wisdom. And we have moved so far away from valuing the emotional world from valuing the instinctual world. And that is so important, and I know, and kudos to Carl Jung. I was trained as a, as a Jungian depth psychologist, and he would talk about the archetypes, and I'm a firm believer in the power of the archetypes to inform us. I'm a firm believer in the power of the feminine and the masculine to inform us. And when I was writing Joy from Fear, I was counseled by one editor to stay away from the feminine and the masculine, that that was too gendered. So I moved into, I, I, I sought a, a friend's help on finding the correct terminology because she's great at neurolinguistics. And then I ultimately, after troubleshooting with her and brain shooting with her, came up with nurture energy and power energy. So nurture energy and power mm. energy. Nurture energy is what we would traditionally think of as the feminine, and power energy is what we would traditionally think of as the masculine. But when we look at them in a non-gendered way as nurture energy and power energy, we can see that a human being, regardless of your gender, who is in balance will have strong nurture energy, the ability to love, to have empathy, to tune in, to be kind, to be compassionate, and also have a balanced power energy, which is that ability to go forth, to do what we need to do, to stand in our truth, to be strong. And it takes us back to something that was removed from Joy from Fear, which I wish it hadn't been, but, you know, as you know, the editing process is, laborious and I had really wanted to talk had it in there about the tale of Cinderella where we now think of Cinderella which was originally Baba Yaga and we now because it's all romanticized and sanitized but it was originally a tale of the self not a prince charming coming to rescue the poor woebegone female it was about the woman coming to find her other half, her the nurture energy finding the power energy. It was about a man finding his nurture energy, his other half. It is about a person, regardless of gender, finding their nurture energy and their power energy and bringing them together to make a whole person. And to me, that is such an ongoing journey of life because I'm a fairly feminine, you know, woman raised that way. And I have had to work, as you, as I said earlier on, to really embrace my power energy. I work with it all the time to not tip over, you know, become, you know, aggressive. I, I'm not a big fan of, I'm a fan of being assertive but not being aggressive. And so we can work, each one of us, no matter our age, to continue to find that balance 
that union of our nurture energy and our power energy. And to me, that is one of going back to aging joyfully, such a beautiful part about once you're done taking, raising the family, taking care of the kids, doing all of those things, not saying that you need to do that, mind you, but if that's where, what you were programmed to do and that's where you find yourself, then this part, whether you're 40 or, or 50 or beyond that, you get to create your own life. You get the opportunity to bring your life into balance and harmony so you're living from a place of harmony and passion. And I, I know in my own life, I used to put up a sign in my home. I, you know, I have two sons, and I put up a sign that says, Don't Break Mama's Spirit, because I believe I was learning you know, they were two of my biggest advocates as I went back to doctoral school, as was my mom. It was that pod of three that was my support. My mom, bless her heart, today's Mother's Day, you know, a good mom, my goodness, and my sons, and they so empowered me, so supported me. But there were times that I think they, too, wanted me back to be that traditional person they had known, the people pleaser. And I'd put signs up around the house because I realized I had a spirit. And I would say, don't break mama's spirit. And even now, if somebody gets in, in, you know, and tries to have me be a people pleaser or be less than, I would say, don't break my spirit. Don't, don't even try. Don't. Don't. Because, and I believe we all deserve that. We all deserve to find our spirit. And it gives me tears. I can feel them welling up in my heart. No matter how old you are, no matter how young you are, you deserve you deserve more than anything to have your spirit seen and loved and valued. It is the best of us. Our spirits, that's what's important. It's not how much money we have or the color of our skin or what our gender is. You deserve to have your spirit shine. That's your gift. That's your gift to the planet. That's your gift from the divine. So, and and things like that can get me a bit weepy because I'm so passionate about it. I've seen far too many people where their spirits were squashed because of other people's agendas. And that is so wrong. And it's wrong for our planet, going back to what you said about our planet. When we are out of sync with our spirits and our best selves, then everything gets out of whack. And I'm in my office as I speak to you, and one of the big pieces on my wall is, is says, if you see yourself in others, then whom can you harm, Buddha? And I take from that and extrapolate to move to the planet. If we see ourselves in the planet, in each bird, in each worm, in each, um, you know, famous or infamous for picking up wor worms when I'm walking and it's raining to rescue them and put them off, not that everyone needs to do that, but I do believe we are all that interconnected. And we need to be, we, we have enough resources now to know what is right for ourselves and what is right for others and what is right for the planet. Mm -hmm. And if you, speaking of planet, if you talk about interconnectivity, uh, Paul Stamets, a renowned mycologist, uh, talks about the, a, a, a huge network of fungal mm, fingers, I'll call it, tendrils, reaching across like half the planet, communicating with each other. And that's one of the also things about the thing about being in forest is forest is in communication with itself. It might, you know, send out some kind of signal. It could be you know, like Diana Berfra's Kroger's work, an MD who became a botanist because she didn't like the MD world, uh, who speaks of that and talks about going into the forest, you will always come out smarter. Yeah. And and the, and the truth of that is also that that there are esters or oils that are being produced by the forest, and you're inhaling those into your system. In Japan, they have forests that are built as parks to wander in, and they always and they do it because of the health benefits. Well, it's beautiful, but they also do it because they know that being in the forest, they will benefit from that, and they've done studies on immune system benefits of being in forest. And part of that is obviously, to me and you, the peace and essence of being in forest, but there's also the benefits of the oils that are coming out of those trees that you're inhaling into your body, and your body's going, oh, wow, that feels really good. So that's why typically people come out of the forest being smarter. 
and that makes sense. I've heard it called forest bathing, mm-hmm. and that makes sense. You're getting um, you're getting bathed in in nature and all those gifts, all of the things that our eyes can't see, but our bodies and our spirits understand and recognize. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I want to. We're going to jump slightly here. Okay. I'd like your thoughts on blame or guilt, and how do we transform those or release or your words? One of my favorite topics, um, because I think we get immersed in blame and guilt far too much, and blame, for me, there's no purpose of it. There's no purpose to blame. There is a purpose to calling something out and saying, this occurred, next time, can we do it differently, please? This is what, what I'd like differently. Um, this is what would be healthy in the future. No blame, no shame, just this is the issue, let's address it, let's move beyond it. So I believe many people grow up in families where there's a lot of blame, and they never detach from that, and so they continue to blame others, their own children, people at work. They think their partners are blaming them when the partner might simply be saying, you know, please do this instead of that, please. So I think when we were raised in very blame-shame environments, as many of us are, we really need to look at those patterns, to look at the scripts that we have going on in our heads and really create an inner monologue, inner scripts that take us away from that. And this is a big piece of the work. A lot of the work in my next book, The Joy of Imperfect Love, is basically neuro-linguistic. It is about looking at these internal scripts we have, inherited or adopted, and, you know, from other places. So I think we really need to become mindful about any blame that is in us and then learn to move away from that in a very mindful, very mindful way. Uh, Sorry, Richard. Um, No, I'm happy to hear that sound. I know that sound is dog ear flaps, so I'm delighted always. That is my giant schnauzer. Um, By the way, his name is Freedom, and that's Freedom. So... Uh, Then when we look at guilt, and having been raised Catholic, um, and this is nothing against the Catholic religion, but it is one of the religions that is heavy in raising you to do certain things with the power of guilt. God will not love you, Um, or at least that's how it was used in my family, my community. Your parents will not love you. If you do this, you should be guilty. You should this, that. So to me... Guilt is something that has a powerful message. And this, to me, is the only time that we want to use guilt. When I do something, if I do something, let's say this is the example I use often. If I steal a candy bar from a store, I want to feel guilty. I want someone to teach me that that was wrong. So that I take the candy bar back, or if I've eaten it, go back to the store, pay the shopkeeper, maybe do an act of service, donate some money or some time to pulling weeds or something, and then never do it again. And so guilt, when used appropriately, this is my way of looking at it, teaches us a lesson We learn from that lesson, and then we let go of the guilt. I don't see any reason to have guilt beyond that. And that's why I tend to not carry guilt with me, because I very much see if I make a mistake, I will make amends, and then I will move forward. I may still feel badly. I'm like, oh, goodness, I wish I hadn't done that. But I will make amends. And when we make amends and take responsibility, and I think that that is the gift of guilt, that Mm. guilt help us level up and then become a better person. 
And I think it is, and beyond, again, beyond that, people who carry guilt or guilt trip other people, I don't see any benefit to it. And I'd same as I don't really see much benefit to shame, and many of us are raised on shame. And it's, you know, a go-to. It's also the source of so many addiction patterns, unresolved shame, shame carried, shame carried from generation to generation. And this is all part of that self-work we can do to look at the past, to let go of that which doesn't serve us, that which we inherited, that which we created and hardwired in, let it go, and really um, polish the stone of who we are. And that is nature's way, going back to nature, and that is a big message in my next book where I talk about we are each stones. We are gems in the making. And when we take our journey, just as nature polishes, nature polishes, it takes, you know, the river and all of this beautiful energy of nature to create sand and the beautiful mountains. And when we look at that as a metaphor for working on the self, that we can, by choice, polish who we are. We don't need to stay rough and fractured. We can keep polishing and polishing and polishing. And that is a gift that we can give to ourselves. Mm. There's a renowned gemologist down in Marin who's been, I've known him for decades now, and he takes a piece of stone. I mean, just to, when you look at his raw collections of minerals they look like they could have color or lightness to them or there could be a piece of geode that's you know broken or something and he'll turn it into he will do that to a mineral he will take it and carve it into something that is just take that gem quality and and these aren't necessarily precious minerals these must be it might be something like citrine let's say which is a sort of a smoky coarse Mm -hmm. kind of color and he will carve it into the most amazing form and and we always laughed about it, how I think he psychometrizes. Even though he denies that, we know he does. Because mm-hmm. he takes a stone, he'll pick it up, and you can, I can just, you can just see him kind of like trance out for a moment while it's coming to him what that stone wants to be. And it's just a stunning transformation to see. To, and that's exactly what I get when you're talking about it. It's that. Going from this rough, dirt-covered piece of, you don't know what it is, and you wash it off, and then you go, wow, look, there's something there. And then he develops that into beautiful pieces of art. Absolutely. And I believe, as you're talking about the citrine, right, All of, and around my office I have um, different, different rocks that have been polished, that um, I believe that we all have, that power of our own sort to take something, the self and something else on the planet, and polish it. Mm-hmm. Whether we are the best teacher that we can be, the best mother, the best parent, the best dog owner, the best, you know, talk show guy, right? Mm-hmm. Those are things that we have. I think it's the joy and privilege of finding those. And as we polish those crafts, we also polish ourselves. Mm-hmm. And then people get the experience of seeing that piece of polished work. Absolutely, and I think that's why art speaks to us so beautifully sometimes. Mm-hmm. It really is. Yeah, art is amazing. And when I I have a a thing with like this gentleman's work, Glenn Lair, who does these stones that just take something that is nothing and then six months later and sometimes he'll work on a project and set aside and then go back to it and do some more work until it comes into the piece that he see it could be and it is there have been moments of weeping that's all i'll say because it's just extraordinary to see it go from a dirt wad to like wow dude it it sounds (laughs) incredible and it's wonderful how it parallels self-work there mm-hmm. are times we work on ourselves intensely. We go through and we start with this ball of mud, right, of who we are. And we work and we work and then, oh, I just need to rest from this. I don't want to do any for now. 
and then we go back and we do some work, and then we hit a plateau, and then we go back. And then along the way, all of these glistening bits of the self start materializing. Mm -hmm. We don't see it when it's in progress. We often don't see it until maybe months, years later, we look back and say, ah, that was the dirt clod I was, as lovely as it was. It was a dirt clod. And mm-hmm. now I sparkle and shine. Right. So it's a beautiful, a beautiful parallel. I'm sorry to say we're at that time where I ask you, where would you like people to find out more about your work, working with you, and your books? You can find more about me at uh, com, And from there, there are links to my Instagram, my Facebook, all the usual places. Um, so, yes, just Car- com. Great. Thank you. And I look forward to your next book on power energy, masculine, and nature energy, feminine. There's well, a book title there. I just don't quite have it. But well, that was book. all. That was all in my first book, Joy from Fear. I'm sorry, I get so passionate and I talk about too many things at once. That is all in pretty much its own chapter in Joy from Fear, my first book. Oh, okay. My the upcoming book is The Joy of Imperfect Love. So that'll be. We'll talk about that when the time comes. I'm so excited. That's great. That's excellent. Well, as always, that was very fun. Thank you so much. Dr. Carla. Thank you. It's a pleasure and a joy. Thank you for having me. You bet. And everybody else, have a great rest of the weekend, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.